everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is the first episode of The Author's Desk. We're doing something a little bit differently. Um, a lot of times when we in um, questions and answering sessions, it's usually a, um, focused on, um, like, purely on, like, craft dynamics. Um, so, and that's the writer's table, but this is more, I think, a more of a personal podcast. Um, and so I'm going to experiment on myself first, and we'll start with the first question. And what will happen is, um, for those of you um, in the live podcast, uh, you put a question in the ask me se- um, um, ask me a question section, and I will look at it and I will answer it and I will delete it. If I read it and I delete it without answering it, that means I don't want to answer it. So please don't ask it again. Okay, great. <clears throat> because you know sometimes you might ask a question that I'm just not comfortable answering. And so um, I'm not going to address that. I'll just delete it. And uh, please don't be offended. It's just, um, that's just the best way to handle it without having a a drama. And we don't need drama. Okay. Tangerine asks, (laughs) that will never not be funny. Tangerine asks, regarding challenges, do you have any kind of gauge for the amount of plot, backstory, world building, and or character conflict for various work count goals? Um, I don't have a ch- I, I don't have a chart or anything like I don't have like this thing that I pull out and say okay my my goal is 50k so I need to and like just dial it up and figure out you know and I've already figured that out in advance I think a lot of times um, you get kind of bogged down in the um, I think as writers sometimes we can get bogged down in the process a little bit and say, okay, um, I need this, this, and this, and this, like it's some kind of formula. And often, yes, there is a formula in the background that you're working with as far as like goals, motivation, and conflict, um, your plot, your subplot, your character profiles, whatever world building you have to do, if you if, um, if you need a timeline and your backstory. And so these are all elements that you need. But you shouldn't treat it like it's a puzzle that must fit together just one certain way. Um, Because that leads you to creating um, works that are very um, narrow in their focus. And you end up with this formula plot, these formula characters. And if you've ever read a lot of like Harlequin books you get this you know boy meets girl they have an argument they get back together they say i love you they have sex the end bye happy ever ever, happily ever after nancy drew's that way harlequin desire you know and these are very formulaic right things and so if you treat your process like that like you're putting together a puzzle it is the same puzzle every single time um, you're going to get bored and your readers are going to be bored and you're like, why am I telling the same story over and over and over again? And I think that happens when you are too narrow in your focus when it comes to your process and you don't allow yourself to um, generate uh new kinds of characters and new ideas and new thoughts. And sometimes you see that with authors who are stuck in a single genre and they don't, they feel like they can't branch out. But then you have authors who have three or four different pen names because they don't let anybody put them in a box or in a corner. 
And that's important. Not to let anybody, not let the, not to let me or um, any other writing, you know, writers that you're around, um, your publishers, uh, your agent, um, editors, proofers, whoever you encounter, you know, you work with and encounter in um, in writing environments. Don't let them stick you in a box because that's the getting put in a box. If just imagine living in a box your whole life. Just, just imagine it. You've got four walls, a basement. You, you, you got, you got a roof and a floor and four walls, and it's all brown, and that's all you know. And someone comes into this box and says, "Hey, describe something to me." Well, the only thing you're gonna have to describe is the damn box you've been living in, or your depressive um, misery of being of having lived in this box your whole life, right? So don't put your creative process in that box either. Because it just, it limits you. And then you start regurgitating your own ideas. Um, and it's perfectly okay to be inspired by other people. But when you're only regurgitating their ideas or your, or just your own ideas over and over and over again, there are no new elements to your work. There are no new elements to your characters. You're telling that, you know, and like you say, there are only seven, basically seven plots in the world, but there's an infinite way to tell those seven stories. Don't tell yourself the same story every time. And so I think that's really important that when you're looking at um, your toolkit that you don't, let your goal get, you don't let your goal put you in a box. So when it comes to like a challenge, like, a, like going into rough trade, um, I knew that my minimum word count for rough trade is always going to be for, for 50 K for November because national novel writing month. That's usually my goal. That, that's my minimum. Um, I sat down and with my plot, and um, we are, the three of us were doing like just a, you know, just a prompt, just, just to see what we could come up with, um, to see how that would work. And so I knew, I, I had a little, I had a more narrow focus on my challenge going into this, not just a canon divergence, but a third perspective, an outside perspective influencing my main character. So going into that, okay, this is my main character. How are they being influenced? What's going to happen? What is the result of this influence? Um, how many, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at 50 to 100K uh, based just on how long I think it will accomplish what has to be accomplished by my characters. How many points of view do I have? I have three, perhaps four. Um, coming into um, rough trade. Um, I would like to narrow it down to three, but I don't think I'm going to be able to accomplish that. Um, so knowing all of this, I sit down and I do my zero draft and I look at where my characters are when the story starts. And now I look at the and I look to my canon divergence point. Where are where are they going to land and what's going to happen? And how do I how do I navigate that forward? What is so important? And then based on that, I create my timeline. I create um I tweak my character profiles because this is fan fiction, so I already have a whole bunch of character profiles. I um 
I look at the various subplots that must be addressed based on canon events. And this is important when you're writing like in a fan fiction challenge like um, Canon Divergence because there are certain points, and we've been talking about this all along, also um, all summer about Canon Divergence, that there are some points in canon that you're going to have to address, that you're going to have to look at and say, okay, how do I deal? Like my, my, my November project is going to be Harry Potter. There are some plot points that are concrete uh, if I don't, but I'm, because I am writing a canon divergence, which means I have to deal with the Horcruxes. I have to deal with the Weasleys. I have to deal with Sirius Black. I have to deal with Dumbledore. I have to deal with the wards on Privet Drive. What do I do with them? Um, how do I handle Harry Potter? Uh, how is Harry Potter going to respond to this third party? And the information this th this third party has um, because of his own time travel. And Harry Potter is not time traveled. Um, I'm 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 writing a time travel story where Ragnarok, um, the chieftain of the Diverger Horde, which is the goblins, um, his wife has explained to him that the world is too far gone, that magic is too damaged by Tom Riddle. So, and they're all going to die. She's seen it. There's no way around it. Um, and so she's like, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, he says, well, we're going to, we're going to have to go fix this. So he invites Hermione Granger to the, um, to the bank and he interrogates her and he learns everything he needs to know about what happened to Harry Potter, about what happened to the Horcruxes, um, about Riddle. Uh, he finds out about the Horcruxes and she tells him everything. And he takes that information and he goes back in time with his wife. And his influence over Harry Potter's life, having known all that he knows, is going to ripple out through magical Britain like a tsunami. And so I have to account for a whole bunch of ripples because he has, he has power that no other character I've taken back in time has. He is a king in his own right. And he has the power of the entire horde in the bank behind him. If he wants to have someone go get a fucking Horcrux, he just has a team say, hey, go to Little Hangleton and go into that little shack and get that Horcrux for me. And don't come back without it. And they'll go do it. It isn't like Harry Potter having to sneak around. This is, I mean, you know, he's a king. He's not, so he's not like anything I've ever had to do, right? And I don't, I'm like, I'm really excited, but also kind of nervous. Um, so that would be really exciting. But I think that um, when it comes to planning your, um, your challenge, that first you need your premise and then you decide um, how much world building you do, how much backstory do you need? Um, what kind of character profiles that you need. And then you do your zero draft or your, or your timeline or whatever prep you do for your plot. If you're a plotter, you're going to do a zero draft or your plot outline. You might do a timeline. You're going to look at your world building. What world building do you need? Now, coming into this, I need a lot of world building because um, Lenore, his wife, is going to be a prophet. So I have to look at a lot of divination and... Um, the use of various tools and rituals. I have to build several rituals, including the one where they travel back in time. And so, you know, there's lots of world building for me to do in the background before I even start writing. And the backstory is all canon. So I don't have to look, I don't, it's, it's going to be 
tweaked just a little, but all the canon, I mean, all the story is back can is, is canon. So my canon divergent actually starts when Ragnarok lands back in time. That point of canon divergence is shortly after fourth year. And he's going to steal Harry Potter from Privet Drive before there's ever a chance for a Dementor to be let loose. And so it's um, that's going to ripple. It's going to have immense consequences. And so being able to um, having these tools in your toolkit for world building and um, knowing how your characters are going to respond to various situations because you've done your character profiles really helps when it comes to your zero draft. Because I know that when Ragnarok sends his son Rizel to Privet Drive with a letter from Hermione Granger inviting Harry to join him at the uh, her at the bank, he's not going to hesitate because he trusts Hermione. He um he'd been on Privet Drive for about a week, and Hermione is sending him a letter through. He don't even, what he's reckless. He trusts Hermione. He's going to pack his shit and go with this um, diverger. He's not even going to hesitate. I know this about Harry Potter. So it's like, it, I already know what's going to happen. I know what he's going to do. He's going to be like, hell yeah, I'll have tea with, with, this, with this dude. Where's Hermione? <laughs> you know? So there's no question, right? So knowing your character as well as you do serves you best, I think, in your planning and your plotting your zero draft. Because once you get all that accomplished, um, the rest is cake. So I um, hope that answers your question. Yeah, I don't think he would, um, he's not even going to like remotely hesitate. You know, it's just, it's not something that he would do. Okay, so the next one. Shara says, Shara, I, I had that right earlier. I'm sorry if I got it wrong tonight. The other night you talked about conflict in the writing process. You also mentioned goals and motivations being the rest of the triad of the foundation of a story. It's the foundation of the story and the characterization. Can the motivations and goals change during the story or are the changes the basis of a sequel? Your character cannot be static. If your character does not change and grow throughout the course of your story, you're not taking them on the journey they need to be on. And if you know anything about yourself, you know that as you've grown, as you've moved through your life, your goals and your desires and your needs and your wants and your motivations have changed based on your circumstances. You talk about the hierarchy of needs in psychology, wherein that um, in order to reach self-actualization, in order to reach a higher state of mental um, facility, to be creative, that first, the first thing you must solve is shelter and food. You have to be safe in your environment. Um, where's your next meal coming from? Do you have clean water? Do you have a place to sleep? And once these basic needs are met, the human mind can expand beyond survival. And <clears throat> so if you, if, if you look up the hierarchy of needs, we can... I haven't looked at the pyramid in a very long time. Let me get one. It's from Maslow. It's Maslow's hi hierarchy of needs. Um, 
I'm going to copy and paste one into um, the chat. So if you look at the hierarchy of needs, um, your physiological needs comes first. Food, water, warmth, rest. Are you eating? Are you drinking? Are you warm? Are you comfortable? Are you sleeping? And after that, are you safe? Are you secure? Do you have to worry about some wolf creature coming into your cave? No. You're good. You've got guards. You've got friends. That, that's where your um, um, your tribe comes from. Comes in. You have your intimate relationships, your family, your friends. And then you have your esteem needs. And that's a feeling of accomplishment. Um, a feeling of prestige is when you are able to accomplish things um, for yourself and for your peers. And once you've reached all these needs, you become self-actualized and you can create your, um, your full potential. You start to, and, that, and, and that's where arts um, entered into the human scope of things. Like once we got shelter and food and tribal and community, we got all that on lockdown, then we started to create. We started to tell stories to each other. We started to make music. We started to to paint on cave walls. We started to carve. Um, I imagine at that point also um, various god worship entered um, humanity. And beer. Yeah, definitely beer. <laughs> we started to get creative with our clothes, right? We started to actually, you know, like get creative with our physical ex uh, expression, figure out what beauty meant to us. And so these, this self-actualization is, it, it's, it's part of your character, right? This is, this is base primal stuff. Um, so if your character is in a fight and flight mode, they're not, I mean, their goals and motivations are primal and practically feral. If they're not, um, if they're not safe, if they're hungry, um, if they're cold and they don't have anywhere to sleep, the needs and motivations of your character are, are, are drastically different from a character who has a house to live in, who has a food full of refrigerator. I mean, a food, a refrigerator full of food <laughs> that did not come out right. Um, and so when you look at your character, um, yeah, yeah, and body modification, absolutely, as. Um, so when you look at your character and you see where your character is and you define their wants and their needs, their motivations, um, their, um, their desires, who do they want, who do they love, um, who do they need, what do they need, what do they want, what do they hate. Over time, those, the answers to those questions should change to a degree. I mean, obviously, if, you, if, if you're writing a romance, you want your end game to be a certain thing. Right? So, your goals and motivations for your character, they're going to change with their circumstances, with their maturity, as they age, as they grow, as they have experiences. Like, you know, say, for instance, you have a character who wants, whose, whose goal is to meet somebody famous. Well, after they meet that person, they're going to have a new goal. So you need to know what that goal is. 
I mean, do they want to be best friends with this famous person now? Or do they want to put that famous person under their house? I mean, you know, you need to know. You need to know what they want to do with this famous person. Because that's a goal, right? It's not just about meeting them. Maybe it is. And if that's the case, then their next goal is probably to go home. But if it's not, you need to know. You need to know what motivates them. What keeps them going. What keeps them awake. What is sustaining their their mind and their soul over their stomach? Because it's a big difference. And of course, depending on what they want to do with this famous person, determines what kind of genre you're writing in. <laughs> yeah, misery. I mean... <laughs> Because Edgar Allan Poe would probably put that famous person under his house. <laughs> Not him, but like, like his character would. And we've all seen what Stephen King will, will do with a famous person. The book and the movie that ruined um, authors all over the planet. Um, <clears throat> so, just... Um, like for instance, with my with my story in November, um, uh, Ragnarok's goals are are pretty intense, um, and there are a lot of fixits that are happening in the background based on his goals. Like he needs to accomplish. Well, he number one, he's he needs to get rid of Tom Riddle. He needs to prepare Harry Potter to fulfill his destiny because he believes in prophecy. His wife is a prophet. His wife has seen what happens if Harry Potter doesn't defeat Riddle. And he's seen what happens if Riddle is defeated, but not quickly enough. She's shown him various futures that he could face and nightmares, nightmare futures based on what happens if Harry Potter is not prepared to meet his destiny on the very day he should. So he has goals and motivations that um, that in some ways serve Harry Potter and in some ways don't. Very much like Dumbledore, but Ragnarok isn't interested in getting Harry killed as a result. You shall see, Dark. You shall see. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, but as the story unfolds, his goals are going to mature and change as they're met. Um, because he's complicated, just like all other characters. Characters are complicated. They don't have one goal. They don't have one motivation. Um, last night, we were talking about um, attraction and how you can be really deeply attracted to somebody that you hate. Like, you know, there's like a physical attraction. That's the same thing. That's a very complicated emotion. You're like, oh, God, I hate your guts, but I want to jump your bones. <sighs> I mean, it's it's a very complicated emotion, right? <laughs> and so your character should be just as complicated, sometimes contradictory, um, sometimes angry when they shouldn't be, or sad when they shouldn't be. Sometimes they should laugh when they probably should cry. Or you know what I mean? So knowing your character's motivations and goals and figuring out how to um, work them into your story um, is important for your character growth because your character should not be static. Um, 
so I hope that um, answered your question. I've already forgotten your question. Um, maybe this wasn't a good idea because I'm maybe I'm crazy. Um, so, but I hope that answered your question. There's no maybe. I am I am most certainly crazy. Okay, Rogue says, I'm not even sure if this is a question. That's a great start, honey. But okay. But I can only write characters that I can hear in my head, which is why I will probably never write an NCIS Teen Wolf or Hawaii Five-O Sentinels. Although I might borrow some characters based on what I've read, especially from Minions as well as Kira, Jillian, Ladyholder. Mostly because I haven't seen the programs and so I can't relate to them. And I haven't watched or read a lot of anime, so I can't hear those characters when I'm writing. I guess the question is, is does anyone else have this kind of problem? Not that I think it's a problem, or is this just my quirky little self? This... <sighs> this boils down to characterization work. You can't hear those characters because you don't know those characters. No, I mean, I was just trying to get my words together. I'm not sighing at you in particular. I'm, I'm more like sighing. Just, just, it was a general sigh, not a specific sigh. Um, a lot of times, like if, if I'm having a problem writing a character, it's because I haven't stopped to get to know them. I don't know them well enough to write them. I don't know how they're going to respond. You know, how is character A going to respond if character B slaps him in the face? If I don't know the answer to that, I've got no business writing character, character B slapping them in the face. So, if you don't know the character, it can be very difficult to write them. And, it may, and you might be associating the ability to hear them in your head with that knowledge. Now, the best thing you can do, of course, is, you know, write, you know, watch some of that content. Um, the second best thing you can do is create a character profile for them that suits your needs. Go over to the wiki, read their bio, study the actor or the animated images of the character, create a profile, um, that works for you and work with it until you can hear that character in your head. Or not. I mean, if you don't want to do that work, that's perfectly valid. I get it. That's a lot of work. But if you want to put the work into putting a new character in your stable, <laughs> um, then you need to get to know that character. Whether it's through watching their canon circumstances um reading um genfic i think genfic in fandom is probably the best character resource because writers who write um genfic really focus on characterization and you'll get a lot out of genfic for that reason i think the sentinel is actually ideal for that uh you will learn a lot about jim and blair reading genfic that that's out there like non-pairing fix um that are that are canon based but not actually canon like they, they might say canon compliant you're going to learn a lot about the characters reading those kinds of stories um because there's no other agenda they're most often very very good character studies and you will also find and this is actually in this is one place where 
that whole stupid BNF thing is a really good thing. Um, in fandom, you go into a new fandom like Stargate. Not for you, not new for you, but if it was, um, there are a couple of people that you can read in Stargate, and you get a perfect grasp of the characters. Astolot being number one. You want to know about John and Rodney? You go read Astolot. You'll learn everything you need to know about their characters. You read Estefi. You'll learn, you'll learn everything you know you need to know about John Shepard. Because she's because she's a pansexual. Um, Lady Ra is another example. If you want to know about NCIS or Stargate, you you dig into Lady Ra. You're not going to be you're not going to be unhappy. I think Lady Ra also wrote in the Sentinel. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But these are the um, the writers that you, know, you you go into a fandom and you look for a really big name. You're going to learn everything you need to know about these characters in these stories because they are very careful writers. And if you go into a fandom where you don't know anybody, you might have a hard time sussing out the 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 writers that are going to give you the best view of your character that you want. So ask around. Look at recommended, you know, recommended fix. Look at um, top 10 lists, you know, because a lot of fanfic readers are like, oh, this is my favorite story. But, you know, honestly, if you go into Stargate um, Atlantis and you say, hey, what's your favorite story? There are a couple that are going to hit the top of the list. And Wraith Killers is one of them. Like, have you read Wraith Killers? Why haven't you read Wraith Killers? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Go read Wraith Killers. <laughs> someone, someone snag the link on the link for Wraith Killers, please. Um, but uh, I think it's just it's you know looking at the fandom as a whole, finding the really good works in a fandom or is that's the best way to um, Look at the fan in, um, interpretation of characters. Uh, looking at genfic, especially with writers like, um, just it's just it's, it's just a really good idea. But the best way you're going to get a good grasp of characters is to look at their canon content, look at their bios on wikis, and build yourself a character profile. If you can't hear their voice, create their voice in your head and that is your road to creating original characters because until you've mastered that creating a voice in your head that, um, where there is none you're going to have a really hard time writing and creating original characters and that is a skill that in fandom is kind of rare that's why ocs often ring false and people say oh i don't want to read about an oc well, of course they don't, because they're exposed repeatedly over and over again to these cardboard cutouts with um with generic names who who don't fit. Which is why when you encounter a character like Matt Shepard, who I think I did a particularly pretty good job of inserting him into the Stargate. I mean, I've had more than one reader write me and ask me when he was going to appear in the series only to find out that he was an original character right um because he doesn't stand out he um 
the transition of Matt into John's life as his brother is smooth. Because I know him. I know what he sounds like. I know what he smells like. I know how he moves. I know he pops his gum when he's irritated. I said, <laughs> I know he sucks air through his teeth when he's really angry. And knowing those things about your character is really important to hearing their voice. Knowing how they would say words, knowing how um, how they would put a sentence together. And that's how you hear the character in your head. That's where that comes from. That voice, knowing the character as well as possible until you can hear them talking in your head. So I hope that answered your not question, Rogue. You know, honestly, when I put this up, I was worried I wouldn't have enough questions to cover two hours. <laughs> Piper Banner is uh, an OC character in Harry Potter, and she is married to Thaddeus Banner, also an OC. Um, Piper's mother doesn't like Thaddeus. She thinks he's an asshole. And his, her, her father tolerates him because she could have done worse. Uh, she's an only child. Um, her parents are purebloods. Uh, she went to Hogwarts and she sorted into Slytherin. Um, she, uh, is strong-willed. Um, I think I had her sort differently in the legacy just for a kick. But she, but in my original profile, she um, she sorted into Slytherin. And sometimes I'll change their sorting of their house based on what I need from them in a story. You have a character like Zale Wright, who actually hates Albus Dumbledore. I'm not sure if that's clear in, in various um, iterations of him, but he hates him. In fact, he hates him so much that he had a difficult time going to Hogwarts. He, he only managed to finish his fifth year before transferring to a different school. Because he hates him. And it's like this visceral, magical response to Albus Dumbledore. And it doesn't actually matter if Dumbledore is a good guy or a bad guy in the story. Zale still hates him. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He just hates him. He hated him on sight. So, so you know, and knowing these things about your characters, your original characters, will let you hear them in your head. So if you're not hearing a canon character, you just need to get to know them. And how you get to know them is entirely up to you. Right? They should be purple ducks with that tie. Anyways. I hope that answered your question, Ro. Not question. So Dark says, so I remember you saying you have to work hard on action scenes. What is it about the, them that makes it harder? Is it the pacing or the keeping track of who is where and when? Or is it like remembering the terms for certain moves and multiple people using different disciplines? It is all that. Plus, it just seems awkward. 
It is awkward. That's why you won't ever see me explaining sex blow by blow. <laughs> or thrust by thrust. Because it's like... It's like... It's like stereo instructions. I mean... And it's really awkward to describe somebody having a fight without it, without it sounding like you're saying, and then he smacked him in the head with his, his stick, whatever. You know, so it's not just about the terminology that you would use, right? It's about the actual play-by-play -play of physical violence. I don't like violence, number one, as a rule. Number two, I have a difficult time not making it really, really stupidly boring. Yeah, it's like put your left hand on green and your right foot on um your right foot on blue. I mean, it's just it's really awkward. And I've never found my natural rhythm with writing um fight scenes. Physical altercations. Which is my which is my biggest stumbling block right now to finishing small magic. To the point where I am actually considering not even writing the Battle of the Five Armies while I, while I write the Battle of the Five Armies. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, how can I write the Battle of the Five Armies without actually writing the Battle of the Five Armies? <laughs> I just, of course he's going to win. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Knock out my POV character. Wake up the damn things over again. It's an excellent idea. That's the best fade to black possible. My action scenes are ridiculous. It's like... It's, you know, honestly, stereo instructions would be less boring. I mean, it's just like... If I wrote sex the way I wrote the, the way I write action scenes, you guys would not read my sex scenes. You'd be like, "Please stop, Kira. Please, please stop writing this. <laughs> Just fade to black. We beg you. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous." And for some reason, I mean, I absolutely do not want to like try to write an action scene the way I write a sex scene because I don't want to associate, you know, war and violence with sex. No, I mean I don't want to do that. I don't want to I don't want to associate something fun like sex with with war and blood and guts. That'd be gross. Well, yeah, but all Harry did was apparate. He just apparated to the spot, picked the kid up, well, teleported really basically um, because of his animagus form. But he teleported, boom boom boom, and it was over. <laughs> that wasn't much of an action scene. Well, yeah, I mean, those are pretty easy to write, but I'm talking about actual physical altercations. Like, one of the most difficult scenes I've had to write in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond was the whole dueling thing. Which I think is actually a really awkward scene. So, <laughs> well, thanks, Shadow. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my epitaph. You did not suck. I did not suck. But I think it's awkward as fuck. And so it's just, it's about your perception. Sometimes, that's none of your business, Ellie. Sometimes, um, uh, your perception of your work ends up being more important than any other. You know, I actually got grief from my ending for Fall For You and several reviewers said that it was abrupt 
And um, one asshole even pointed out that um, that I was right when I said in my podcast that I couldn't write action. I was just want to say, well, thanks for listening to my podcast. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I mean, but you know, but the thing is, is I did write that scene very short and very abrupt, but that was actually a choice I made because that kind of physical violence is short and it is abrupt and it's mean and it's hard and it happens in seconds. Your, your whole relationship with another person can change in 45 seconds when it comes to that kind of physical violence. You can kill somebody in under a minute. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's harsh and it's sharp. And I'm like, I am never going to write you know, some torture fight scene for you. you know, it, it, and that's what gets you off. Then, then you're talking to the wrong person. Yeah, things are really fast. They're fast and mean and painful. And um, it doesn't take 30 minutes. And also there were some people who were really pissed off because I didn't assign heteronormative roles to, to Raleigh and Marcus because Marcus should have saved Raleigh. Like a damsel in distress. Apparently. And you know what? Honestly, if I had written Riley as a female, Marcus still wouldn't have been there. I would not have written that scene any different if Riley had been a woman. I've said his character twice, his name twice, and I'm thinking to myself, did I just misname my character? But I didn't. Riley. Blake. Riley Blake. Right? Anyways. <laughs> um. But, uh. I. I don't, I don't like those stories where I don't actually appreciate the whole damsel in distress anyway. So I wouldn't write it and I wouldn't have written it even if I was writing a het romance. That scene would have gone down no differently at all if I had been writing a het romance. So. But that heifer can keep her heteronormative shit to herself. Anyways. <laughs> Okay, Chris says, we've all seen glimpses of how hard you work at the business of being a published author, as well as the ways you encourage and support aspiring writers and see, see you posting literally millions of words of yummy fanfic. Before you became a full-time writer, how did you carve out time to be creative while juggling full-time work, family commitments, and nurturing a relationship? What techniques or tips did you use most effectively in finding time to write and plot and research and edit, and despite your other more mundane obligations. That actually wore me out just reading that. Um, what do you do now to ensure and maintain a healthy balance between professional work, fanfic, and having a life offline? Um, there's a life offline? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, sometimes you have to leave a sink full of dishes. I mean, sometimes you have to choose between wash or you know cleaning up the kitchen and writing for an hour. 
And sometimes you have to say, okay, um, if I get up, if I have to be at work at eight and I get up at six, I can write until seven and take a shower and then I'll eat my breakfast on the way to work. <laughs> well, I could if I wanted to, but I got, you know, what? No. I, and you know, honestly, for a long time there, it was really stressful. And, um, I actually retreated into fandom because, uh, writing professionally and all of the stuff that comes with that was killing me. Um, I had developed an ulcer. I, um, I was having agonizing, very stressful migraines. I was throwing up regularly. Um, to the point where my doctor was like, do you need a psychiatrist? And I'm like, no, I, I'm, I'm not anorexic. <laughs> this is, I don't know why I keep throwing up, but it turned out to be stress. It was stress. And, um, I, I developed a severe ulcer. Um, I nearly had to have surgery for it. Uh, so, but one day, shortly after I'd gotten an all clear on a biopsy for, the first cancer scare. I sat down and I said, you know, I need to make a list of things that make me happy. And a list of things that make me don't happy, that not unhappy. And I need to make sure the list that makes me happy is longer than the list that makes me unhappy. And at the time, I could not have said that. Um, there was, and it would, and you know, on that list of things that made me unhappy, there were some people. I had some very toxic relationships at that time. Um, I had people in my life, other writers, who took up a huge amount of my time. And there was no benefit to me. And I don't mean that to be sound selfish or rude. I mean to say that they would suck out all of my creativity and give none of it back. It was like, it was like, it was like, yeah, it was like, it was like living with a word vampire. It was, it was like being around a word vampire. And it was just like, you know, I, I want to be around other writers to be inspired, but you're not inspiring me. In fact, you, 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 you kind of pissed me off. And one of these writers in particular, I had asked her to read a project of mine and to give me an alpha read on it. Basically what I now know to be an alpha read. Um, and she said, well, you don't need me. You're published. And I was like, okay, you heifer. And the next time she asked me to read something, I thought, well, I don't have time for you. I'm published. And she probably never once connected the two. She told everybody that knew us that I was a, that I was a terrible snot because I'd published and I treated her poorly. And one of my other friends said, no, that's not why she's treating you poorly. <laughs> Don't get mixed up. <laughs> I mean, you know, there is no single, there is no single author on the market who doesn't need an editor. Not one. You are incapable of finding all of your mistakes. Was being honest with myself, yes, yes, it was very hard. In fact, in some ways, it kind of broke my heart because it meant um, setting aside um, some friendships that I'd had for decades and also uh, recognizing that the goals I had for me, had for myself as a writer, were not 
um, realistic because it was putting a pressure on me um, that was making me very ill. Um, and physically ill. And so it was, you know, it was, it was an immense growing up moment for me. And also, and, it came, and I came to the terms with the fact that um, I would never, ever be in a position um, where I could write for a living. Because maintaining that kind of schedule wasn't good for me. And I, I couldn't keep up with that. So, yeah, I mean, it was very hard accepting that. Um, and then from to, to rearrange and say, okay, you know, what actually is the most important part of my process? Is it being published? Well, no, as a matter of fact, it's not. If I'm never professionally published again, as long as I live, I wouldn't cry. Because it isn't about that. It's about the actual creative process. And it was very difficult and painful and hurtful, especially when you're doing it to yourself. You know, you know, that kind of self-reflection is, is just, it's deeply uncomfortable. But then I also have to combat the, the people around me who, who, who watched me get published, um, very published at a very young age. Um, not as young as Margaret, but still quite young. Um, I had a deal on the table from a New York print publisher before I was even 30. The three book deal, no less. And so I have all these people around me going, well, when's your next book coming out? When's your next book coming out? When's your next book coming out? And finally, someone said to me, one day, I thought, oh, fuck, never. And fuck you for asking. Because I couldn't handle it. And you have people in your life who, who assume that because you're a writer and because you're published, that you'll just be that automatically as successful as Nora Roberts. That's not how that works. And then, they, and then they look at you like you're a failure if you're mid-list. Well, most authors are mid-list. That's the thing, right? That's the thing. There was nothing on my happy list that surprised me because basically it was writing my dogs, my husband, my mom, my sister, my my nieces and nephews, my Xbox. <laughs> I knew what made me happy. I just really wasn't identifying very well what was making me unhappy. And that's often the case that you do know what makes you happy, but oftentimes you're unaware of the little things that make you absolutely miserable. We have separate Xboxes. What? No. He also has a PlayStation downstairs. So, um, the only thing we actually share is we have one of those little, those little retro Nintendo boxes with like Mario on it. We share that. We don't even share a DVR. <laughs> that's just that's just an argument waiting to happen. <laughs> if why make war in your own marriage? <laughs> it's just not worth it, right? But a lot of times, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, you would be hard pressed to think of very specific things that make you deeply unhappy, unless they're happening in the moment. Which is why stress can be such a killer. 
because it comes at you and you're not even you don't even know it until it's sitting right on top of you and then you're forced to deal with it you know so i i hope maybe i answered that question um i think that um what is most beneficial to me is to have a schedule to know okay um and to not because without a schedule you'll get into that mindset when you sit down to write that you shouldn't be writing that you should be doing something else that you should be vacuuming the carpets or you should be walking the dog or you should be paying bills or you should be washing those dishes or two days in the sink and I probably should be washing those dishes or two days in the sink. But if you have a schedule and you say on this day for these two hours, this is my writing time. I have no responsibilities, but this, this is my writing time. So you, and you, and then you don't feel guilty about it and your mind will be clear. You won't have all this stress about the things that you should be doing. Um, because this is your writing time. And respect your writing time. And make others around you respect your writing time as well. Because that is super important. The ability to stand up for your writing time is like the most important thing. Where you can say, okay, I'm writing to someone who interrupts you. Or someone calls um, and you just let it go to voicemail. Because it's your writing time. And if they call back another second later, you're like, okay, you'll answer it. And like, is this an emergency? Because it's my writing time. And you will train people in your life not to disturb you during your writing time because you're kind of rude about it. And you can be because that's your, that's your time. That, that's the time you've carved out for yourself to make yourself happy, to do something that pleases you and rewards you and fulfills you. So... Have a schedule and be very protective of your of your of your time because your time is valuable um and if you're only writing fan fiction if you're writing original fiction it doesn't matter when someone asks you what you're doing you can tell them i'm doing something that makes me happy and then you can watch them try to figure out how to tell you that you're not allowed to do that. Because if you say, I'm writing fan fiction, well, why are you wasting your time with that shit? They automatically have something to say about it. But if you say, I'm doing something that makes me really happy, then they got to figure out how to tell you that you're not allowed to be happy. That their preferences for, you, for what you do with your time is more important than your own happiness. It's great. I can't recommend it enough. Okay. <laughs> Margaret asks, um, and Margaret recently published her second book on cobblestone. It's called The Summer Princess. It was beautiful. The cover is beautiful. The story is beautiful. It's very sexy. You guys should go read it. Um, Margaret asks, how do you go about writing a sequel when it's planned from the start versus a request from a publisher or a desire to write more in the world that you built? Um, Yeah, our baby is publishing erotica. Um, let me go ask that question. Let me go answer that. Look at that question again. Um, how do you go about writing a sequel? Um, well, normally when I start a project, 
always leave myself room for a sequel. I, I, I will thread in a character that has potential for their own book. Um, but not so much that it's like they, they feel like the reader feels like they're out of place or you want to know more, you need to know more. Like if you read fall for you, I actually threaded in several characters that will have sequels. Um, the deputy law, he will get a book. Um, Jared, of course, will get a book. Um, and um, Riley's sister will get a book. And I'm actually considering a book for his mom, too. So, um, just leaving a little thread that you can pull is a good way to get a sequel. Um, inserting a character that you have potential to use in a, in a different story is a great way to get a sequel. Yeah, and you get a book. But yeah, I mean, and so that's how I do it. That's the easiest way to do it, is to introduce a character, even if they're in the background, they don't really, just give, give them a little moment that will stick out in the reader's brain so that when they, so when they get their book, they'll be excited. Like, oh, I'm so glad to see him again. What is he doing? I hope he doesn't get shot this time. Wow, that werewolf's hot. <laughs> that's what you want, right? You want them to to see a, a a character that you've introduced in your first book as an old friend they're meeting in their new in um in the next book. So that's how I do it. Um, and as far as far as like um when a publisher asks you for a sequel, that can be very stressful. Yes. Um, you, there's an expectation there. Um. They published two of your books already, so they're probably looking for a third or a fourth. I mean, there's seasons that that's a seasonal series, right? So you've got two more planned. I'm sure that the publisher is like, okay, when can I expect those? That's reasonable. Um, so you know, honestly, I would not go into a series like what you just did without having planned all four books. But I'm a plotter and a planner, and that's how I work. Um, and it's perfectly okay if that's not how you work, you know, if, uh, you know, so I don't want to invalidate your process. Um, but, uh, knowing like just kind of having your, um, your ducks in a row when it comes to a premise like you created, which is gorgeous, by the way, um, is, uh, it's good. So, yeah, you know where you're going. You have your main characters. Yeah, you'll get there. Just relax. We have the same publisher, so um, I'm, I've dealt with her. I'm familiar with her. She She's not a tyrant, so uh, just relax. Take your time. Tell the story that you want to tell. Um, and it'll be fine. So just, yeah, just focus on your story. T tell the story that you want to tell. That's the important part. Um, and there may come a time in your future where you, you write a sequel to something that you've published with a publisher and they, they look at the sequel and they go, you know what, this really doesn't work for me, but can you do this instead? Can you make this, this, and this changes to this? Because then it would fit better with what I need for my publisher. And then you have to make a decision about whether or not you want to change that. Um, 
Well, it's important that you not work with somebody who's going to be a real asshole tyrant, Tangerine. I mean, it's like really is. It's super important because there's actually nothing more, um, nothing negatively impacts my uh, creative process more than someone who's a demanding asshole. I mean, seriously. I cannot stand somebody to make demands of me, which is why I find it so offensive in fandom. Just like, please don't. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, just, and fuck you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, threading, um, introducing your next character for the series in the book before it is a very good idea. Is there a story that I'll never run again because of demanding? Yes. I actually rage quit dark places in the soul and swore on my magic on live journal that I would never finish it. Which is fine because it sucks anyway. Anyway. <laughs> no, I have never sworn off the Sentinel. I've never swore on my magic that I wouldn't finish the Sentinel, you know, um, Sentinel works. I mean, obviously I've written Sentinel work since. Um, I am a little gun shy about writing a strictly Sentinel story, but I didn't make any vows or promises on my magic that I wouldn't. <laughs> but I straight up swore on my magic on my journal that I would never finish Dark Places in the Soul. <laughs> well, the Awakening, um, the Awakening is finished. Oh, the sequel. I've actually started the sequel several times. Um, but no, I never said I wouldn't. I just, I'm, I'm really gun shy about that fandom in general. Um, so, I don't know about that, but no, there was no swearing of any kind of magic or anything like that. Um, I just, mm, I don't want to spend an, another three hours bitching about the Sentinel fandom. <laughs> and I will. And the award for the most questions goes to Elspeth. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Question number one. For some characters, it's easier to fall into their POV than others. These characters resonate in such a way it's very enjoyable and easy to write them. Other characters I struggle with, particularly those who are not from modern settings or have a more formalized addiction, i.e. Vulcans or people in historical settings. I know the content I want to convey for these characters, but I will stumble in writing it. It's hard to capture their voice and the cadences of their thoughts properly. Do you have any advice on ways to enter those more difficult mindsets to keep POV and dialogue consistent? Um, writing exercises. Um, do some first-person writing exercises. Have your character, or, as your character, write yourself a letter. Don't publish it. Because <laughs> that's weird. But um, just... You got to practice. You got to practice until you hear them in your head. And if that means writing in first person, um, writing letters to yourself, um, having a conversation with them in your head, um, even if it makes you look crazy, um, reading their dialogue outside. I mean, and if it's a popular fandom character, go pick out your favorite stories that this character is in and read their dialogue out loud. Figure out their diction. Figure out their um, where they breathe between words. Shadow, you little crazy thing. I hope you drank that milk. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, just just have a conversation with your character, whether you do it on whether you're writing it or whether you're talking it out. And there have been times when I've had really emotional moments and scenes that I had to I had to get up out of my seat and think about. I had to walk around my house, talk about it, um, think about it. Yeah, one of the things I did in Tangle Destinies with Spock is that I had Vulcans like be allergic to contra um to contractions, and so it's like. Because they, they, they think it's lazy. Uh, and it is. I mean, it is actually lazy. That's one of the reasons why it exists. Um, but, because uh, we're lazy. We're very lazy speakers. Uh, but, having little language quirks like that will make it easy to separate your characters out. Because I think that if you took out dialogue tags in Tangled Destiny with, uh, with a scene between Jim and Spock, that you wouldn't have a problem knowing which character was speaking. And that's another way to do it. Is to take your scene. Write your scene without dialogue tags. Don't publish your scene without dialogue tags. Just so we're clear. Write your scene without dialogue tags. And see if you have a problem picking out which character is speaking. And then Taylor then tailor your um, character's overall vocabulary and diction to what is important to you. What about when the vocabulary is off, but you aren't sure what it should be? You need to do some research. Do some research and be consistent. Your reader will follow you if you're consistent. So you must be consistent. Um, look up uh, if it's like if you want to write a historical character in England, the best thing you can do is go over to the, um, the Cambridge Dictionary because they will give you um, words that were used in the 16th century and the 17th century. They will so you can look at words and say, you know, like, I imagine for a lot of people, the first time any of them heard the term quim was in the Avengers. I would like to know how many people had to go look that up. Because they had never heard. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the Oxford. Yeah, the, the Oxford Dictionary. The Oxford is a Cambridge. The Webster isn't as good. Um, I knew what it meant. Obviously. But I would be, I would not be surprised if a large portion of the audience had to look up what the word quim meant. Yeah, he, Loki calls Black Widow a mewling quim. And my, and my husband leaned over and says, what, what? I said, he just called her a cunt. <laughs> they were separated between Hulk Glass. I mean, yeah, for context, I think it was pretty obvious what he meant, right? But there are a lot of people who would have had no who had no idea what the word quim was. So, and um, but when you use language like that, you need to be consistent. And that word would not have been at home coming out of the mouth of Tony Stark. But it didn't surprise me at all. When, when Loki used it. Nor did it surprise me at all. That when 
Hela told Thor and Loki to take a knee. He went, I beg your pardon. It didn't surprise me at all. Because they had established Loki's speech patterns, his his method of speaking, the words he would say, his vocabulary, which is like, yeah, because it, it was basically like, bitch, what? <laughs> Just like in in Star Trek. Yeah. When when Spock says before the High Council, um, who's invited him to the Science Academy, um, live long and prosper. If anybody didn't get the fact he was telling them to go fuck themselves, I, I don't even know what to tell you. Because Live Long and Prosper had never in the history of Star Trek sounded more like go fuck yourself and die in a fire. I mean, ever. So it's about um, tone, diction, when your character is breathing, when they speak, the words they pause over, how they phrase things. You just just keep just keep up with it and um and be consistent. Be consistent. Sp sprinkle your vocabulary with antiquated words, but don't use all of those words because you don't have to because your reader will make an adjustment for you as long as you are consistent. When you're writing a character who's historical, um just, but please don't like try to write accents because I can't read that shit. <laughs> Did anybody else understand half the things Hagrid said in the book? Because I'll be like, Joanne, stop. Please stop. <laughs> Why'd you start this? Why'd you do this? Oh my God. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <clears throat> but yeah, just be consistent and um, your reader will follow you for good or bad. Let's see, what is, okay, question two. Should you go over the difference between a main plot and a subplot? Your main plot is, okay, for instance, the main plot of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was Harry finding and protecting the Sorcerer's Stone before Voldemort could take it. Um, there are various subplots in the Philosopher's Stone. Um, the argument between Ron and Hermione that ends up with her in the bathroom is a subplot. Um, his relationship and um, home life with his his aunt Petunia is a subplot. Uh, the origin, like them figuring out, um, or them thinking that Snape is was messing with with with, with Harry at the Quidditch game, kind of a subplot. These are all like little dangling things that are kind of you know kind of weaving back together into the main plot to serve a point. Um, so basically your subplots should shoot off of your main plot, but they shouldn't fall off 
your sub um um your main plot. So like if you've got your main plot going and you have these little branches of subplots moving in and you know moving out and moving back into the plot to kind of like feed into it, um, everything's going really well, right? But when your subplot falls off your main branch and and plants itself and becomes a tree, you got a problem. That's not a subplot. That could be the seed of a sequel, but you need to bring it back up because it's not ready to drop yet. You need to move it. Um, so your subplot should be should be supporting Cass to your main plot. Has that happened in one of my stories? No. Because I'm actually really, really militant about subplots and there was a time when I was quite young that I didn't write them at all that I wrote a very straight path beginning middle and end there were no surprises there were no extra characters there were no extra plots there were no pathways leading up we, we were on the road to the to the wizard and there was no pit stops I grew out of that but I'm still very very stingy with the whole subplot thing. Because it can be a distraction. And when you weave a really, really big main plot, or just a plot in general, you don't need a lot of subplots. I would say in Darkly Loyal, the biggest subplot in Darkly Loyal would be their actual marriage and romance. And the whole Dumbledore thing, like him being in a school trying to ruin their marriage, subplot. But it hooked back into the main plot. But the whole murder-revenge thing is was most definitely the main plot. They came back with a purpose. And that purpose was murder. <laughs> and that was, that was it. You know? Um, the the competition between Winky and Dobby was was definitely a subplot. I put that in for um, comic relief because it was getting really, really dark. Ideally, your subplots should be supplementing your main plot. They're little side trips. They're like when you're on a trip and you have to stop and pee. That's a subplot. Or you have to stop at an overlook to stretch your legs a little bit. That's a subplot. But then you get back on the road. Yeah, main quest and side quest. But you don't want to have a side quest that becomes a main quest of its own. Right? And you don't want your subplots to be a diversion either. Because you don't want to take away from the momentum of your plot. And if your subplot starts to be a diversion, you're going to destroy your pace. And once you've destroyed your pace with a subplot, you're screwed. And if you're... Do you ever wonder why there are all those works in progress that get abandoned? It's either because they've written themselves into a hole... Or they've subplotted themselves so far off the main path that they can't find it. 
Dumbledore, not Dumbledore, Gandalf told him to stay on the main path, and meanwhile, they're in the river. Don't stray from the path. Don't eat anything in the forest. They're in the river. For fuck's sake. And now they're captured and being held hostage by the Elf King. <laughs> and that subplot ruined the pace of The Hobbit. It also ruined the pace of the movie. <laughs> Well, the ending totally ruined that book. But yeah, I mean, so your subplots should weave in and out of your main plot, but never all the way, not, not so far out, you can't even see your main plot. They should always supplement and not divert from. Yeah, there was a lot of sausage in The Hobbit. Um, so, is that, did that answer that question? Question three. When should you add subplots and when should you pull them out? Always pull out a subplot if you realize it does nothing to serve your characters, your main characters, GMC. Is it helping to meet their goal? Is it helping to supplement their motivations? Is it helping with conflict? Is it creating conflict? Is it more conflict than you need? So if this subplot is is impacting your GMC, um, take it out. A good reason to put in subplot is to slow your pace. Because there is such a thing as going too fast. Because you can exhaust yourself and your reader if you're going too fast. Like, one of the subplots that I stuck in to Unleash Your Demons was actually spiderling running away from home and going to spend the night with Peter Parker. Because I needed a, a moment of levity in that scene, but I also needed to f deepen the connection between Tony and the Parkers. And also I wanted to kind of tag a little bit, give you a little bit of foreshadowing between Spiderling and the future Spider-Man. I wanted you to see that affinity that Peter had for Spiderling. That it was far more than Spiderling just being a robot. Um, and him liking robots. Because there's a, there's a line in there um, where Peter says, He even built me a hammock in my closet. Because Spiderling recognized the spider in Peter and gave Peter something that he needed. A little hiding space in his closet. So that was a little bit of foreshadowing that no matter what Tony did, he couldn't stop Peter from becoming Spider-Man because Peter, because Peter is already Spider-Man. He's just not awake yet. So a lot of times you can take a subplot like that, a tiny little subplot that really from the outside doesn't look like it serves any purpose. Yeah, um, Peter um, was genetically um, manipulated. 
He just hasn't been exposed to gamma radi um, radiation. And that's all it's going to take is radiation for his X gene to come on. And so if um, it's low to pace, it gave me a moment of comic relief when when Tony recognized that his spider bot had ran away from home um, and that, you know, Jarvis had to say that, you know, the, you know, without the whole bro code thing. Um, no, it has to be gamma radiation, which Peter is exposed to later on in the book. Um, and that they know that his, um, his, that his mutation is going to basically activate with puberty. And that comes up near the end of the book. But that scene, yeah, it had it had a lot of purposes. It was letting you know that Spiderling was a lot more advanced than you thought he was. Um, that he had developed a really interesting relationship with Jarvis, and that Jarvis had a lot more autonomy, maybe than you thought he did. But also that Peter had an affinity with Spiderling that transcended the whole robot thing. So that little subplot served a lot of points a lot of things and you might not even as a reader recognize all of them like on a conscious level but i hope that on some subconscious level you did see those connections coming together yeah yeah and it set up an, a deeper connection with him um with the parkers so yeah so that's how that's how you use a subplot to further your characterization to um Give yourself a little pocket of room to do some foreshadowing to uh, just to further your plot, further your characterization. Give yourself a little room, give yourself a little breathing room, slow the pace a little bit. Because here's Tony taking time out from his very busy schedule to come visit the Parkers and pick up his robot kid um, and reassure Peter. Um, but also it gives you a glimpse into Peter's creativity and his intelligence that he was able to figure out how to charge spider of um, spiderling with a hairdryer. Even if it was a little dangerous. <laughs> there is a fic where Tony makes sentient Roombas. I think it's uh, the toaster verse. Liz, put your question in the Ask Me Anything question because that's going to disappear really quickly. Okay. I don't determine subplots based on the length of stories. I will say... Oh, no, let, me, let, me, let me ask the question first because that's ridiculous. Okay. Um, question. How many subplots should you have for certain lengths of stories? That is not a determination that you can just make on the fly. Um, sometimes, like, you just got to pants a penguin. I mean, you need to like, give yourself room, creative room, even if you're a plotter, to recognize when there's a shortfall in your narrative. Um, whether that means, you know, inserting a penguin or spiraling going on an adventure without Tony or um, Hermione getting almost killed by a troll in the, in the in the bathroom. That's why, ladies, we don't ever go to the bathroom by ourselves. Hermione almost bit the big one. We, we, we have to go in a team. Anyways, um, sometimes a strategically placed subplot serves your serves your plot. Um, 
and sometimes it can ruin your plot. So you just, I think this is a trial and error thing you learn by doing. The Owl Baby. Yes, the Owl Baby in um in Darkly Loyal Branwell that's about Harry's son. Harry's magic is grieving as as much as he is in Darkly Loyal. And Branwell in Darkly Loyal is a is a is a baby um, um, um he's an owlet. And he is enamored with Harry. But what that is, is it, um, it's a magical um, c connection. Branwell is, um, is a magical creature. And he can, he can feel, um, he's recognized something in Harry that, um, that he wants to soothe. So Branwell adopted him, right? So all those scenes with Branwell and Harry, that's really about, about Branwell trying to make him feel better about the loss of his son. In the other timeline. And that kind of um, symbolism. Um, isn't something I normally would explain. Like it's either something you get or you don't. <laughs> and if you don't get it. It's not a problem right. Because it, it doesn't take away from any of those scenes. But if you get it. And you see it. And you know it. It makes those scenes really rich. You know. It's about reader perception. And the deeper your reader's perception is, the more they'll get out of the work that you give them. Oh, I absolutely do think that Branwell ended up being Ezra's owl. Absolutely. But the first time I wrote Branwell in a scene, I cried. Because I knew, because when I plotted it, I was like, okay, this is um, this is what I'm going to do with this. This is how I'm going to do it. Um, but the first time I did it, I cried. I was like, oh, God. Why did I do this to myself? And so all of the scenes with Bramwell are actually very emotional for me. They were they were very emotional because um, I knew what I was doing. I was what I was weaving into it, um, and it was just like, <sighs> damn it! <laughs> Why did I decide that was a good idea? <laughs> Why did I do that to myself? It's just terrible. <laughs> but yeah. Branwell is is the symbolic. Um, he's just a symbolism that represents um, Harry's lost child. I think that it worked out really well. So it was a good idea. Um, it was just you know uncomfortable in the execution, but that doesn't mean. I mean, and I didn't hesitate to do it. And even like whenever one of those scenes would come up in my plot document, I'm like, okay, damn it, here we go. And I would do it. I didn't hesitate because it served my story. It served my characters. And Branwell was doing exactly what he was um, created to do. And sometimes you have to do things for your story that can be uncomfortable. Okay, number question number five. It was mentioned in a previous podcast that a story you'd been reading was still going on at, on even after it ran out of plot. What does that mean? How do you run out of plot? Well, that's a person who's never watched um, the two the, um, the on the Return of the King. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, it's like it's like everything is done, right? Every, everything is resolved. Like you know. Here's Aragorn. He, he's got his crown. The ring's been destroyed. Mordor exploded. Why do we still have story? What's left? Seriously. 
what's left? Oh, wait. Okay, so the hobbits are going home. Great, great. Then we're done, right? No. God damn it. <laughs> I, just, I just... Why wouldn't it end? The book is worse than the movie. The book is worse, I have to say. It just, like... So sometimes you'll see a story where the where the author has wrapped up all their plot points. Um, and yet the falling action keeps falling. It's like that scene in in Endgame where Loki finally lands and he says, I've been falling for 30 minutes. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Did you guys watch Deadpool 2? In Deadpool 2, there comes a scene where Deadpool has taken a bullet for the kid. Right? And when it first happens, you're like, oh no, not, not, oh. Well, I'm going to spoil it. Close your ears. And you're like, oh no, Deadpool, no, no. And then he keeps not dying. And you're like, He had a suppression collar on. He was going to die. I am aware of how Deadpool works. He had a suppression collar on. He was actually dying of cancer at the time. Right? So, but he took a bullet for the kid, right? So he's going to die. And he, and he knows he's dying. And he keeps saying he's going to die. And he keeps saying it, saying it and saying it. And we're like three minutes into this. And I'm like, die already. I'm dying. <laughs> Why can't you die like a normal person, Deadpool? What's wrong with you? But then he doesn't die. <laughs> you go through all that and then Cable like rewinds time and saves him. So now we know that Ryan Reynolds isn't allowed to die on screen and now we know why. Because he's ridiculous and won't shut up. <laughs> he doesn't know how to die properly. He needs to take lessons from Sean Bean. <laughs> it was so frustrating. It was, and it was meant to be. It was meant to be frustrating. So it was actually, it was a very good scene. But it was meant to be frustrating. And it was just like, I can't fucking believe you. <sighs> Nobody's dying in this scene. It was, but yeah, it was great though. Actually, I I really enjoyed Deadpool too. Um, well, Sean Bean has decided he's not going to die anymore. He's actually turned down a whole bunch of roles recently. And he said, that I'm not going to die anymore. I guess he's tired of being a meme. I don't blame him. Anyways. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes, like, you know, you'll see a story where all of the, like, the characters are, you know, like, your, 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 your couple is together. They're living there happily ever after. All the bad guys are dead. And you're like, why is the story still going on? What do you mean I got 10 more chapters? That doesn't make any fucking sense. How could there be 10 more chapters? This is the end. But then they ramp it back up, right? And then you get some more nonsense. But it's like not even related to the main plot. You're thinking, did they, did they accidentally start posting their sequel on the original? Why are you doing this? You had a great moment. You, you, you had a great falling action. You had an awesome climax. You had your great falling action. We were ready for the end. Come already. <laughs> I'm tired. I got work tomorrow. 
just an epilogue is usually placed some time period after your end. You got your falling action, you've got your end scene, everything is done. Um, in a romance novel, it's usually the birth of a child or maybe a wedding ceremony or whatever. You know? Um, but in an epilogue, an epilogue should take there should be there, there should be a significant amount of space time-wise between your ending and your epilogue. Um honestly, no no less than 6 months. Because if it's the next day, fuck you, why? Unless that epilogue is saying the planet was destroyed the next day, fuck you. That doesn't make any sense. I honestly well, you know, my Deathly Hallows doesn't actually have an epilogue because I cut it out. But I don't think that it actually needed an epilogue. Yeah, fuck you, why? It's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Why? 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 <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, your epilogue, six months to a year? It, I think even that, in some situations, is pushing it. But if you're writing a, a regular romance novel and you got your ending and you want to do a little epilogue to to reassure your reader that your heroes or your hero heroines or your hero and your heroine or your hero your hero and your heroine or your heroine and your hero hero and your other heroine, whatever you got going on in your book, that every turned everything what that everything turned out great. <laughs> no not now oh sorry um then then do an epilogue I, I wish i'd heard it anyways I'll, I'll listen to it later and i'll try to clean it up hopefully but do an epilogue for your romance novel if it makes sense <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, to reassure the happily ever after, to make your reader, you know, relax completely. Um, I do think an epilogue is out of place. Like if you're like if if you're on book one of a five book series, your book one doesn't need an epilogue. That'd be weird. But if you want to reassure your reader about the position of your characters from book one, you can do that in book two. Yeah, that would be called book two. Yeah. Fuck you, why? <laughs> Just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. I hope that, you know. Tangerine asks, what's your best way to seek permission blessing for adopting OCs or world building? Like Sentinel Guide theories. Um, do you have do you have to be sent ramblings? I don't. About how I'm head tweaking, tweaking headcanon elements that I think you and or Jilly and set to me with. Would an email be good? An idea balance of something I'm working on it roots in the idea of yours, but I do something different with it. Do you want to know about it beforehand or see a draft? Or no, I don't. Um I have a whole page on my website dedicated to permissions. Um, basically, it's this. Don't remix my work because that's plagiarism and I don't care what anybody says. Um, my ideas, my concepts, um, 
you can't own those, do with them what you will. Um, if I inspire you, tell people, I don't care. Either way, do what you will. You know, um, if you use my OCs, um, be nice to Matt Shepard. Uh, because while it was not intentional, um, I accidentally kind of, there's a connection with him with the real Matt Shepard people and people have, in fact, someone asked me once if I had named my character, Matthew Shepard after the real Matt Shepard. And I did not, it didn't even, it was a coincidence. It didn't even occur to me. It's not spelled the same, but um, it would upset me greatly. If one of my readers took Matt Shepard and abused him because he is kind of connected to me in my brain to the real Matt Shepard. And that poor beautiful boy died in such horrible circumstances and i i would be livid with anyone who mistreated um my matt shepherd um yeah matthew shepherd was gay bashed to death he was tied to a fence and beaten to death basically i think it had you have to look it up. I'm not sure. He was very young and he uh, and and he was killed for being gay. He was he was 17 or 18. He was he was quite young. But it had, but it happened about 20 years ago and he was tied to a fence um and beaten to death and it it, it it's terrible. But I did not name him. I did not name my OC after Matt Shepard. Um the original Matt Shepard. It was when I named John's brother, I was looking at John and David and those were biblical names. And so I went to, um, I was looking at other biblical names and I knew that that particular version of um, Matt Shepard, um, that that shepherd was going to be packed, was, was going to be the junior. He was going to be Patrick something Shepard junior. So I was looking at that. I was thinking, well, Matthew, of the biblical names that are available that, that I'm looking at looks the best with Patrick. So I named him Patrick Shepherd, Patrick Matthew Shepherd Jr. So it was just about having a name that worked with Patrick um, because he's the junior of him. He, um, he's the youngest son and he's the son that was named, named after their, um, their father. Um, but the real Matthew Shepherd was killed in 1998. Um, He was, um, it was bad. And so just, just be kind to Matt Shepard, my OC, because I could not bear it to see my fictional character treated that way. Cause it, it, it would be like, I can't even explain why, it, if you don't understand why that would be terrible and horrible, please don't use my OCs at all. <laughs> I mean, just don't, you know what I mean? Just don't touch my stuff if you don't understand why that would be terrible. But yeah, there's a whole page on my website dedicated to dedicated to permissions, um, and outlining what I think is acceptable and what I don't. But obviously, I have no control over that. Um, I'll just be deeply disappointed in you if you misbehave. But I would say that. Um, we have had someone take something from one of our plot drifts, something that one of us intended to write. 
and they wrote it and they didn't even bother to give us credit for it. And I was just like, you heifer? <laughs> didn't say anything. And I've also had people borrow heavily from my concepts and my plots and not credit me. Fine, whatever. Okay. Heifer. I mean, it's obviously not required, right? I'm, I'm not going to pitch a fit, but um, it would be nice if you're going to take my plot wholesale and use it for your own that you might mention that I inspired you. Just saying. It's okay to be inspired by what you hear on the podcast. It's okay to be inspired by what you read. Um, and it's okay. And it's okay to actually write ideas based on that inspiration. So that's transformative. That's that, that's what fan fiction is, right? But to not acknowledge that inspiration is just rude. That's just that's just my personal opinion. And I've been reading Hannibal lately, so you know what I think about the rude. I I, I read Blackbird today. And about halfway through it, now Julia recommended this to me, Blackbird. About halfway through it, I messaged her and said, I can't write in this fandom because I don't know, I don't know enough about gourmet cooking. It's very intimidating. <laughs> I think Hannibal would be very disappointed in his menu options if I was cooking, if if, if I was writing. And I was just like, I, I just can't. <laughs> Actually, Blackbird was, uh, I, it was... It was fucking fantastic. I mean, even, I, I even with the cannibalism, I, I I couldn't even be. It was fantastic. If you like BDSM, and you can overlook the cannibalism, I really highly recommend Blackbird. It was. I do, Margaret. I would welcome a recommendation. You can um, private. Um, you can PM it to me if you would like. Um, I, I really, um, yeah, Blackbird. It's on um, Ao3. It's fantastic. <sighs> no, I don't know. I don't read any anime or manga. I don't know any what any of it is. But you no, know, Blackbird. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a Hannibal fiction. It's Hannibal Will, and, and Hannibal is a is is a. It's still very much a cannibal and is subtle and lovely and a little bit of a mind fuck and um, not a single moment of it seems out of place or unnatural. It's just, it was great. Rogue asked, do you have to have a character cast? I don't... You mean for, like, Rough Trade? I, you know, I watched... Yes, that's a... That's... Um... Hold on. No, that is not it. Hold on. It is... Blackbird by 
Emungere, E-M-U-N-G-E-R-E. I will put it in the podcast link library. Um, but it is not for the faint of heart. But quite, quite good. Um, you don't, you know, you don't need a casting for, for Quantum Bang or any plan challenge. But considering what you said to me earlier about not being able to hear characters in your head, I recommend that you do it, Rogue. I think you're, you're, um, you're cheating yourself a little bit on this character front. Uh, and it might be in your best interest to kind of delve into some character, um, exercises among them, casting the character, um, looking at pictures of the character, uh, just, you know, dig in. But again, it's not required. I just, I in in your case, I would highly recommend it to give yourself a better connection and to like, especially if you're using an if, if, if you're trying to build an OC, find um, scenes on YouTube of this actor or actress that you've chosen. Listen to them talk, watch them move around, and just really dig in so that you can figure out what your character sounds like, what they look like, how they move, how they smell. If they snore, you know, just general stuff. I think it'd really help your characterization issue. Um, Shadow says, "Do you have a form to start a a form you start with for character bios, or did you way back then before it became second nature?" I still use a character sheet. Um, I was actually. I'm in the midst of building a plotting thing and um, I was doing it on um, Facebook, but I stopped. Let me look and see if this is it. Thought of what, Nevi? Yeah, this is it. Um, I do use a character profile uh, because it I believe so, yes. And um, I'm also going to build, um, I set up a forum on Rough Trade so I can put my plot, um, my plotting thing together there and, and put up all the documents and stuff that you guys would need. Um, but it's a work in progress because it isn't like I don't have like 3,000 billion things to do. So, but it is there. But yeah, I use a character profile sheet. Um, in fandom, I have a uh, character profile sheets for most of my characters that I use a lot and what I will do is I will copy and paste it into my new folder where my new project is and tweak that character profile to fit with the story that I'm writing um, but as I've gotten older my memories for shit so I definitely still use the um, the profile itself Do you plan to go back to some of your older series like the old black magic or are you focusing more on new inspiration and ideas? I actually have the sequel for that um that old black magic in the works. I am two chapters in. Um the thing is is you know your writer brain is fluid. So you're going to move around. I am. I always move around. I have over 100 works in progress. Um wow, Tangerine, you keep that kind of stuff to yourself. Wow. Wow. Just kidding. Um, 
<laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, we, um, we added them up one night. I have over a hundred works in progress. Yeah. Um, I actually even have a, um, an Excel document for it. Give me a second. I'll, I'll call it up. I'll give you my word count in, for, for works in progress. I got to make sure that um, I took. Yeah, I'm, I was making sure I had taken um, Unleash Your Demons off of it. Um, I currently have um, 1,662,000 words in my works in progress. Of which there are 129. My biggest work in progress is actually the unspeakable plot and it's 185k and I'm actually going to split that up into episodes. That's my published works in progress, Tangerine. On my site, um I have my published work in progress meter and it is like at 3.1 million or 3.3 million or something like that. That is words published on that site. That does not include any words published on um EAD. Or any words published at um, the Wild Hair Project. And I don't think I actually updated it for Unleash Your Demons. So I need to. <laughs> but that is just words on my personal site. Completed works. Works in progress. But my lifetime word count is probably over 20 million. Easily. But I've been writing since... I mean, I've... Um, me, we did the math, but I forgot the number. Hold on. I've been writing for 33 years. 33 years as of probably this October is when I sat down with a notebook and actually started writing my first novel. Um, and then I switched to a typewriter. I got that Christmas. I asked for a typewriter. I, I wrote for like, I wrote in October, November in like um, two notebooks. And then my mom asked me what I wanted for Christmas. And I said, I wanted a typewriter. And that's all I wanted. I only wanted to shut up, both of y'all, in the corner. Dishonor on your cows. Um, all I wanted for Christmas was a typewriter. And so I got a typewriter and um, I, I transferred all that I had written um, onto type pages. And then I finished my first novel later in like that, that following year. Before that, I told a lot, you know, I told little stories to my cousins and my grandma, you know. Um, yeah, I taught myself to type, but then I also took typing and keyboarding in high school. But, um, my first typewriter was a brother, was a brother typewriter. I still have it. It's, in, it's, it's downstairs in my laundry room on the shelf in case I need it. I don't know why I would need it, but that isn't something you can part with. It still works too. So 33 years. So 33 years over 20 million words. That doesn't seem unreasonable. You earn your grown-up pennies the first time you file taxes, sweetheart. So you already earned those. There you go. Grown-up. Don't let anybody tell you different. Being a grown adult woman has absolutely nothing to do about whether or not a penis has been in your body. No matter what a man might say. 
Um, anyways, so yeah, I mean, I fucking forget what the question was. Oh, the yeah, the old but yeah, works in progress. The thing is, is I. I hope there never comes a day when I don't have a hundred ideas and ten different directions to go. Or a hundred different directions to go. I never want that day to happen. So um, I don't view my works in progress file as anything less than my a current meter of my potential. <laughs> you know? And so if it, you know, someone asked me actually, if I would go back to, um, if I would write the sequel to, um, and the stars burn, which is the opening of the set of se the second set of, um, stories set in what might've been, cause I wrote the first book and then I moved on to other things. Um, the thing is, is yeah, I mean, it's going to happen eventually because I'm going to roll back around to there and, I'm, and I want to finish it. I have, I have. I have all the novellas that I want to do um, already zero drafted for that series. So I just had to get there again. And that's, you know, one of the things that made me miserable on my list was forcing myself to write something I didn't want to write. So I don't, do that anymore ever it's not healthy and it isn't like I cut a and it isn't like anybody cut me a check <laughs> and that's something that you do well like, like, like when you're when you're in a professional setting and, and you're writing on spec and you send somebody off the first three chapters or something in a synopsis and they're like okay yeah I'll take that here's a contract and a check and you're like fuck it now I gotta write it God damn it. I should have written it in advance. I, now I have to cash this check. Because <laughs> they sent you a check. <laughs> actually, the last time I got, it was actually a, a digital deposit. But you know what I mean. You know? So, and that kind of circumstance was actually deeply unhealthy for me. It, 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 put, it put me in a terrible headspace. So I don't let anyone or anything um, influence... Um, my my fan fiction writing by the way that works in progress and that number i gave you was just for my fan fiction it does not include my uh, uh, original works how goes the sims and have you decided on a challenge you wanted to do i'm actually i'm i I've actually been designing my own challenge, but I do want to do the 100 baby challenge. I've set up my neighborhood. I've downloaded some baby daddies. I've set up my, my patriarch. Um, and, um, I don't know why I'm hesitating. It's really weird. I'm going to figure it out. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm hesitating. It's new. So I just, I, I have no idea why I'm hesitating to do that. It just, it's a, it's a very weird thing. I even set up my Twitch account. I got my YouTube ready. I, I got my Twitch account set up. I need to go in and tweak the settings for OBS. Oh, The Sims 4. It's a people simulation game. Um, and people play challenges on them. 
and there's this one challenge called the 100 baby challenge where you have to have 100 babies um and so you have a patri- a matriarch or a patriarch and then the, of course in the sims um anybody can have a baby if you if you have the right setting on um and so i'm going to have a male sim and he's going to have babies Yes, Kelsey is actually no. She didn't marry him, but she did have his baby. Kelsey Sim recently got pregnant with Tom Holland's Sim baby. It's pretty funny. Pretty funny. Um, and Kelsey on Buzzfeed is currently doing a 100 baby challenge. It's very, it's very entertaining. Um, and there is one, you know. Um, there's also a Black Widow challenge where you can, like, you you can't um. You can't have a job. The only way you can make money is to marry, um, marry well, and then kill your husband and then get a new one. And as is currently playing the 100 Baby Challenge offline, and she's at up to 25 kids. Um, so congratulations, as that's huge. Uh, so yeah, I've been thinking about playing The Sims, and I, I set it up, and so we'll see. I actually, I kind of want the Realm of Magic, um, expansion pack. And I think I want Island Living as well. So we'll see. I mean, you know, we'll see how it goes. I haven't bought Strangerville yet. I'm, I don't think I want it. I mean, I kind of want the build items, but I don't want the actual Strangerville stuff. Other stuff. I just I just want the build stuff. Anyways. Um, but there are different rules for different challenges. There's Rags to Riches challenges where you have to start with like zero funds on a lot and you have to like scrounge around and find things to eat and um, find things to sell and, you know, build a house and you can't get a job. And just, you know, there's all kinds of different challenges. So I've, I've been kind of designing my own, um, but we'll see how it goes. I think it'd be a lot of fun, but it would be a time suck as well. And maybe that's why I'm hesitating. Because it isn't like I've got a, a humongous amount of time. Um, your Hobbit fanfic, will you ever make a long story? I love your aspect of... Well, I don't actually call her Bilba. I think that's ugly and terrible. I use Bella. Um, I find Bilba to be just horrifying. Um, Baggins, um, and where she's a beast speaker. So I've always wondered if you would continue or make another story with that fandom... I'm sorry if it came off rude. You're not rude. Um, I actually have several works in progress. Um, what? Bill was terrible. James Turner is fucking hilarious. So if you watch anybody play The Sims on YouTube, go watch James Turner because he is freaking hilarious. I hate the name Bill, but it just makes me... Uh, I hate it. Anyway, Bella. I use Bella Rose, um, named after her mother, sort of. Um... But I actually have several works in progress for Bella. Um, small, ma well, small magic is Bilbo, um, but almost done. I'm almost done with small magic. Um, I have one called the Bartered Queen, and you can read that on EAD. In fact, I have several EAD excerpts um, of longer works for Bella. Um, the Shield Maiden of Erebor is one. Um, Spirit Born is another, and Bartered Bride, um, and they're all on my EAD community, so you can go read those on EAD. Um, <clears throat> but I actually, I'm really enamored with the female Bilbo. Uh, in the Bartered Queen, um, can someone grab the EAD community link for her? 
I'd appreciate it. Um, in in the Bartered Queen, Bella's uncle, Owen beats on her feet, makes me cry. Yeah. Um, uncle barters her to Thorin, who is the Lord of the Blue Mountains. His father has basically exiled him there because um, he's gold greedy. Um, and uh, he is, is living there and the king is basically robbing this mountain blind and they don't even have, they're, they're having a hard time feeding everybody. So he bargains with, he barters with the Shire and the, the Thane is pissed off at Bella because she refused to marry his son. Um, and he barters her to the Juaro and doesn't give her a choice and says, you, you can't come back. And so Bella goes off to the Blue Mountains and um, she basically takes over his mountain. <laughs> and by the time Gandalf comes around to get her to rescue her from her situation, um, they're all like, you can't have our hobbit. <laughs> what? No, <laughs> you can't have our hobbit. And she's like, no, I want to stay here with these guys. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Thorin goes from resigned and kind of worried to completely enamored. And um, he even at one point tells, um, he tells Feely that if he could, he'd remake the mountain for her. And so, you know, she just kind of takes them all over. And um, so that's the first arc. The first part, I'm, I'm doing a three-part um, arc in this particular story. And the second part is Thorin coming to terms with his father's insanity. Um, at the gates of Mor um, at the gates of um, Moria. So we all know how that ends in canon. Um, and then um, the third arc will be um, Bella going to Erebor and to be queen under the mountain because she's the um, she's the bartered queen. So of course she has to actually end up being a queen <laughs> so at, at a certain point. So yeah, but I have three, um, but my favorite is uh, four. I have four, but my, but my favorite is probably the shield maiden of Erebor. The shield, the shield maiden of Erebor is an AU and she's a fae and she's a hobbit fae. She was, um, and uh, Thorin's son, friend or foe. Yes. Thorin's son um, who is Durin, he's the reborn Durin, um, Durin the Deathless, has been kidnapped. And she finds him in a forest outside of the Shire. And she makes war for him. And kicks some ass. And she ends up taking him to um, Elrond. And Thorin um, basically negotiates with her to get his kid back. And she agrees. She He agrees that she will go to Erebor to make sure Durin is safe. And meanwhile, Durin's like trying to figure out how he can keep her. And he thinks the best solution would be for his dad to marry her. <laughs> so. Yeah. There's a point where she calls um, Sauron Sourpuss. Made me laugh my ass off. Anyway, so Bella, you know, is is I love Bilbo. Don't get me wrong. I loved writing him in Small Magic. So I love Bilbo. But there is so much testosterone in 
the Hobbit that something needed to give. And I don't think that the character of Bilbo is any less amazing and powerful as a female. So <laughs> it is a weenie fest. It's ridiculous. But yeah, so, you know, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, all the Durans living, so no worries. Um, the other one that I have on the site, um, on EAD is, is, is Beads on Her Feet is on, is on the site as well. And Beads on Her Feet, Thorin and Bella, um, they get all the way to the mountain and in, 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 in his gold madness, he accuses her of adultery because they're married and she runs from him. And she hauls ass all the way to Mordor because she figures out what the ring is. And Gandalf takes her all the way to Mordor. And they get rid of the ring. Then she comes back to the Shire to plant her heart seeds. Her children. Her and, her and Thorin's children. Meanwhile, Thorin's in Erebor and he sent Nori out to find her. And it's a gesture of trust because he actually accused Nori of being the one that she was having the affair with. So it's a gesture of tr trust on his part to Nori, to Nori and to Bella. Um, and but by the time Nori finds her, she's planting her garden in the Shire. And so he goes back to Erebor and he tells Thorin what he's learned you know, about Mordor and about the Shire. And, you know, and Thorin comes to the Shire to beg Bella for forgiveness and finds that she has planted her nursery. Um, Lady Holder gave a link up at the top called um, evilauthorday.dreamwith.org and that's where all those stories will be. They're just excerpts. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really enamored with Bella. Spiritborn. Spiritborn, Thorin and Bella both um, meet their maker after they die. And um, yeah, in um in Bees on Her Feet, Nori tells Thorin that Bella is his queen and Thorin's the guy she's married to, basically. <laughs> you're you're just the bitch she married. <laughs> it yeah, it was fierce. Um but in Spiritborn, they get a serious talking to you. They meet their makers. Um, and then they're sent back in time to try again because they fucked up. Um, and they're actually the living embodiment of Mahal and Yavanna. And that's how they fucked up because they never acknowledged those gifts in themselves or in each other. Um, and it really messed things up. It really ruined Eru's plans. And he's pretty pissed about it. So they're getting another opportunity. So... Um, it's you know it's a very different set of circumstances when the when the quest finally happens because Bella and Thorin are um, their spirit born and my favorite character in that is actually the end because um, Bella accidentally finds the ant wife and wakes her up. <laughs> and one of my favorite lines is when. Um, her name is Indira, and um, Jualin says, you gave the big tree a weapon? And she calls him a short one, and he says, Jualin, and she says, I prefer to be called Indira <laughs> instead of the big tree. 
Yeah, no, no, you haven't seen that part. But I'm really looking forward to you guys seeing it because I really like her a lot. Um, so, but yeah, Thorin makes her a weapon out of an anvil. <laughs> he steals Elrond's anvil and makes him makes her a warhammer out of it. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So I have lots of Bella works on the on the thing. I am actually, I am 100% on board with Jualan and Ori. 100%. I am on that train. But yeah, you know. just I just gotta have time. I just gotta carve out time for it. Okay, next question from Liz. Do you write subplots as you go or you add them later? Do you write scenes in order? I do... 100% right in order. I write from beginning to mid to end. I do not skip ahead. Um, except sometimes when I'm working through my zero draft, I will encounter um, a plot point that looks like this. It'll be like, write a sex scene here. And if I don't feel like writing a sex scene, I will put the words insert sex scene here <laughs> and skip it and write the next real scene and then go back later and write the sex. But for the most part, I do write beginning to end. Um, some subplots are in my zero draft and some are not. Like I said earlier, you know, like the, like the whole penguin thing in Finding Atlantis was totally pants because I was upset because my little dog ran away and I was trying to make myself feel better. Um, the thing with spiraling, running away from home with the bro code was about, you know, giving some, um, some humor to the moment, but also to connecting Tony to the Parkers and Peter to Spotterling and to his future. It was a little bit of foreshadowing. So that was added on after the fact. Um, like after my initial zero draft was done. Um, oh God, as. Oh God. Um, yeah, he's still messed up from prison. Jack may never be the same. Prison changed him. I had to rescue my dog from the pound. He got impounded. Somewhere between leaving my house and getting picked up, he lost his collar. I've not actually watched the Spider-Verse. Shadow asks, would you tell us a few facts that we didn't know about Hiro Ito? Or Armand or Quentin. They're all fascinating. Hero. Some of you probably, I mean, some of you obviously, based on conversation I've seen in MHQ, don't don't actually recognize that he's Japanese. He is. <laughs> he is, in fact, Japanese. He has um, been married many, many times. Um, he doesn't like children. <laughs> Hiro Aito can't stand children. Um, he is, um, he likes to fuck a lot. Makes no bones about it. Um, males and females, he has no, he has no preference there. Um, yeah. Um, 
he uh he's shameless he's utterly shameless and um he attaches little worth to material things he thinks magic is a gift and he will straight up murder you if he catches you disrespecting it My little dog does, in fact, have a chip. He didn't have a chip before his impounding because he had had a chip, but it had shifted and he dug it out. He dug out his chip. He's a picker. And so I was never going to chip him again because it was terrible. Um, he has very sensitive skin and the chip had shifted up against his skin. So he dug it out. So I had never intended on giving him another chip. but. He got chipped against our will. So we're dealing with it. He hasn't touched it yet. So we'll see. It hasn't moved. Like like the old one did. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it, it, it won't be a problem. I'm hoping that he's at an age now. Where his skin's not so sensitive. So he doesn't feel it if it does shift. Maybe I hope so. Because it was terrible. I mean he literally dug a hole in his shoulder. Where it, it was terrible. You don't want to know. Um, uh, Quentin is the nephew of Armand, which most of you probably know. Um, in Darkly Loyal, he's in a relationship with Zale Wright. I actually kind of super ship it. Um, but a lot of times I put Zale with Sirius because I ship that too. Um, but I really dig it. Quentin and Zale. Um, that's probably the direction I will go in Unspeakable Plot. Quentin and Zale. Um, so. But, um, because that's, that's like burning. Yeah, it is. That's hot. Uh, <laughs> Armand is, um, in love with Avila. She's French. Um. He's been in love with her for uh, over a decade. He moved to France to be with her. Um, he. In one story. He's James Potter's godfather. In fact. When I think about it. That's like, like, that's like practically my headcanon now. That he's James Potter's godfather. I think I kind of incepted myself a little bit with it. Um, Armand smokes herbals and that's where Harry Potter gets it from. So whenever you see him smoking an herbal as an adult, it's because he's had some kind of ridiculously, um, serious time with Armand Deering and Armand Deering is to blame <laughs> for his herbal addiction. Armand has a terrible temper, um, and his aura is entirely black, but he's not a dark wizard. Well, he can be a dark wizard, but he, but but, but he's mostly gray, mostly a gray wizard. But his aura is black. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that Armand Deering is dead in small magic. Most of the people connected with Harry Potter died before or after. His disappearance in small magic. 
the only reason Dumbledore kept um, Sirius alive was that they hoped that he'd be able to um, use Sirius to find Harry Potter. <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing that specific scene on YouTube, Tangerine. Um, but yeah, I mean, Thaddeus is dead in um, in, in Small Magic. Zell Wright is dead in Small Magic. I mean, it was a very terrible, harsh world that um, that Lily basically threw her son out of in the moment of her death. That's why she did it. There was no one left to protect her son. Except for Sirius Black. And she knew that he wouldn't be strong enough to fight against... Um... Oh, no. I would never watch um, Game of Thrones. Not, not in a million years. I can't read the books either. I'm sure they're great. And I'm sure the, the show was well done. But... Um... This, this is the same reason I wouldn't watch Outlander. It's very rapey. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lily Potter, in the moment that she died, she knew that Sirius Black wasn't strong enough, wasn't enough of anything at, at his age to protect her son, who was literally going, you know, due to be king. And there was nothing that, the only thing she could do was was remove him from, from the world entirely. So that's what she did. No, no, absolutely not. Not even in death would Zale be near polyester. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the world um, that Harry Potter leaves in Small Magic um, and um, to return to Arda is is a terrible place. It's a very, very terrible place. So. Which is why, one of the reasons why I didn't want to write that half of it. Why I wanted to concentrate on his return to Arda. To, you know, to be with, with Bilbo. And, um, and, for, and, for, and for Hermione to follow. Um, I had, early on, I had it in my arc. That by the time she landed um, in Elrond's garden. They were already gone. And she had to catch up with them. But then I was like, that's not realistic. How's she going to catch up with them? How is that even reasonable? I guess the twins could take her. But I thought, like, no, no, that that couldn't be it. So I had to read, I had to redraft on my zero to fix that. Okay. If you take out the Tony Gibbs pairing, would you be willing to update special operations? Special operations is a, um, is a snippet I have on EAD. Um, Tony Dinozo has been trained by Hetty um, from Los Angeles to run a special operations unit in DC. And originally it had Gibbs and him as a pairing. <sighs> but God. Gibbs is a real dick. You know, in canon. And it's just, it's really difficult to, to write him in a pairing in a healthy relationship with, with Tony. You know, um, um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I'd already zero drafted the whole thing. Um, so, and the relationship with Gibbs is really built into the premise. And so I don't know what I would do with it. I mean, I would have to, I would have to redraft the whole thing. And I just don't know. I don't know. Because it isn't like I can pull Gibbs out and just plop some other character in. Because Gibbs is very polarizing in, in, in CIS. And you just can't... I, I, 
I couldn't do a mass replace <laughs> with Gibbs's name and just stick some other character in there, you know. So it would it, it would have to be an entire re reworking of the premise and the idea. So I don't know. I just I just don't. About your soulmate story with Harry and Hermione, I've been wondering, will you continue it? I was wondering about the fiend fire too, because I love your aspect on it in the Harry Potter series. How do you come up with a magic theory on that? The fiend fire. I I need you to know that I pulled that right out of my ass while I was writing. I had no, I had literally no thought into it. It was like, there was no thought whatsoever when that, when I, I had the duel written down in like in my zero draft, right? Like duel with, with Victor Crumb, Harry wins. That was it. That That's all there was. Right. And I was like, how am I going, how's this going to go down? <laughs> then I had to think about it. Right. And I was like, well, Fiend Fire is really interesting. So let, let me look at that. Let me think about that. And then I just wrote it. And it was just like, and then after I finished writing it, uh, um, you know, after my initial draft of that particular uh, novella, which would, I, I think it'd be Harry's Mentor is, is, is when that happened, I believe. I've not read it recently. I meant to. Um, that, That's when the duel happens, I believe. Because it's Harry's Ward and then Harry's Mentor. I believe. Um, anyways, no, that, that whole faint fire thing, it, it came out of nowhere. It was just, but no, um, actually Hermione will never hold it. Cause look here, here's the thing about that. Um, Harry finds the idea of Hermione having her willingly picking up faint fire to be horrifying. It is the stuff of nightmares for him. And she loves him. So why? Why would she purposefully do something that would hurt and terrify him? I would never do something like that to my husband. Ever. And that's about characterization. For her to make some kind of weird, selfish choice like that, to just, just to say that she could do it, when he's clearly so horrified by it. Well, that's a demonstration of her of, of her elemental ability. But this speaks to relationship mechanics and characterization. When you purposefully let your character do something that would emotionally damage their love interest. That's obscene. Now, will Hermione ever encounter Fiendfire? Absolutely. But that's a plot point. I'm not going to tell you. Um, but she would never willingly pick it up, nor would she allow someone to put it in her hand. He's a dragon in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. He doesn't... Oh, his snake farm. His sna I thought you said snake farm. I was like, what the hell? There's a form. She's a snake. But the farm. His snake farm. I think that she will eventually go there. He just finds it very off-putting that his snakes are so enamored with her. He doesn't know how to deal with it, you know. But he's a young man. And so it's like a thing. You know, he's he's young. He he's very protective of 
of the love he has with her. And um, the thing is, is that Atlas, the snake that she encountered in the bank, is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous snake. That's practically a land shark. I mean, because he is basically, he is the same kind of snake that the genie is in the movie. And if you've ever seen her in the movie, what the fuck? I mean, that is like some serious shit. So he's a very, he's a very dangerous, mostly domesticated creature. And when she leans forward and looks at his teeth, it wasn't unlike sticking her face in the mouth of an, of, uh, of the open mouth of a lion. Or a shark. Or an alligator. Or so yeah, I mean, there are plenty of snakes like that in his snake house. There are very dangerous. And he's very protective of her. And so it's like, you know, that that's what young love is, right? But Alice is a baby compared to Najini. He's he's um, he's very young. The Coattail is a spirit snake. You can read about that online. Um, it's a South American spirit snake. Um, they are well, it, it doesn't actually exist in reality. Um, will Hermione find one? I don't know. It's not plotted. That's not to say that there aren't. I, mean, I haven't plotted all of the episodes in the next arc. Um, I plotted most of season two, but I actually have five seasons planned. So I have like arc notes on five arcs or five seasons. Um, so most of season two is, is not about that kind of thing. So it's unlikely. Um, the backstory in the genie is, is, um, is atrocious. I don't, I don't even know what to do with that. I'm, I'm not sure what I will do with it. It was just, it's terrible. I don't know. Um, but that all boils down to time and inclination. Because, like I said earlier, I don't allow myself to be forced into a creative spot anymore. I write here because I want to. I'll come back over here to this. I mean, for all I know, next month I can start working on the next season of um, Sentinels of Atlantis. It's my boat and I'll float it where I want. I have to want to, need to, be inspired by. That is the last question in the channel. Unless somebody has some other questions. <laughs> Thank you, Dark. I'm really excited about my Quantum Bang story. And yet again. You go to college for what, Nevi? Um... Yet again, I am um, unable to talk about it. I'm just like, I'm very excited about my quantum bang. But I was last year too. That's an interesting mix, sweetheart, creative writing and archaeology. Um, I've learned, I've had um, creative writing classes. I've taught um, writing seminars for various colleges in my area. Uh, um, <laughs> I, um, but I'll tell you, I have learned more about the craft of writing, being with other writers, than I ever learned in the classroom. 
Are there any new fandoms I'm tempted by? I already told you guys I can't write in Hannibal because I don't I don't know enough about gourmet cooking. Um, not really. No, not really. I um, I'm very comfortable with my fandoms. I got my Stargate. I got my Harry Potter. I got my Hobbit. Um, I'll dip into a little Hawaii Five O. Dip into a little NCIS. You know, maybe um, mostly for Tony. Um, I'm looking forward to you guys reading The Feeding Frenzy. I think you're really going to enjoy it. There were a whole bunch of us. It's ridiculous how many writers were involved in this process. Um, um, we don't discuss that here, Nevi. <laughs> Just, no. Nah. Nah, dog. <laughs> Right? That's exactly right, Dark. Um, but anyways, um, I um, I would like to invest some more in Stargate coming up. I'd, I'd like to do some more Stargate work, um, which is why Sentinels of Atlantis is on my brain lately. Um, I would like to... Um, I have a couple of Inception projects I'd like to work on, but Inception is really intimidating. Um, the the fandom is outrageously talented. I mean, there are a lot of super talented writers in Inception, and it is intimidating as fuck. And just to be like, <sighs> I guess I have to contact Marley and get her to give me a French title for my story because <laughs> I think it's a prerequisite <laughs> in that fandom to name your story something French. <laughs> so... But yeah, I wouldn't give that particular person a single dime of my money, so I won't be reading any of those books. Um, I, um, I haven't been watching much TV. I have actually DVR'd Stumptown. I want to like it. My husband said it was really good, the first episode. He, he enjoyed it. Um, good night, Chris. Or have a good day at work, Chris. Good day. Because you're over there. And it's a very good day for you, I hope. <laughs> well, I think that if that if Will tried to feed hot dogs to Hannibal, the Hannibal might kill him. And and, and if he didn't kill him, it it, it wouldn't be in character. <laughs> it would be completely out of character for him to survive if he fed Hannibal hot dogs. <laughs> Or a bologna sandwich. I just can't see it. <sighs> Anyways, Hannibal. Um, the the show Hannibal was actually beautiful. The the cinematography in that show was gorgeous. I could not handle the content. Had to let it go. Um. But yeah, I did read that. I did read two very um interesting Hannibal fix last night. Well, today and last night. Um. But yeah, both of, both of which were wrecked last night in the chat, um, probably after the podcast was over. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my fandoms. I, I got my Harry Potter. I, I got the Hobbit. I've got Stargate. I got Hawaii Five-0, NCIS. I mean, 
got a little inception on the side. But and I and I actually have a Teen Wolf project, but it's a gender. It's a it, um, um it's a rule sixty three. Um, but as a rule, um, oh Star Trek, I got Star Trek as well. You know, I've got I've got two projects in in Star Trek. One where um it's a um, it's a Sentinel guide thing called Instinct. I think there could be an excerpt on EAD. Yeah, I style um I sixty three styled styles dark yeah. <laughs> Ladies, look, Lighthorn's gonna look for me. <laughs> I don't remember if Instinct is on um EAD or not, but anyway, I th I think it is. I feel like it is. Um, so that's a Sentinel Star Trek crossover. Um, and I also have one where Spock is really super jealous of Spock Prime, and Spock Prime keeps sending letters to. Kirk um, while they're on their five-year mission and Natalia dumped him um because of uh, um, because of, of his obsession with Kirk but now she's like trying to like you know egg him on <laughs> it's a little snippet I haven't done much with it I just have this idea I, don't, I, I haven't I haven't even zero drafted this idea yet I just wrote like a first couple of scenes because he's just like really irritated that Spock Prime keeps emailing his Kirk or you know what emailing you know messaging and uh, so he's just he he's just real bent about it and so um that that's all I got on that but it, it was amusing to me and I would like to write a second um season for Tangled Destinies so I've got plenty of stuff on my plate so I don't actually need to add new fandom and I already and like like you know, based on my current fandoms, I have a hundred works a hundred and twenty-nine works in progress. I mean, I got plenty to do. I'm not I'm not bored yet. Yeah, I mean sometimes it happens anyway. <laughs> because he is a betazoid. I don't care what anybody says. He was a betazoid in canon. Fuck it. Always. I don't automatically need a fandom for a show. Like, I have no interest in the Farscape fandom. I love the show. I think it's perfect. I have no interest in the fandom for Babylon 5. Um, I'm not really interested in the fandom for um, Firefly. I love Farscape. But Farscape's perfect and it needs nothing from me. Which is why I never write in it. Because it doesn't need anything from me. It was perfect just the way it was. <laughs> Dargo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really honestly, the only fic I would read in Farscape would be the one where Dargo lives. I mean, that, that's it. That's, that's, that's all I need. <sighs> it is a heartbreaker, but beautiful nonetheless. Um, just great show. Farscape is perfect. Um, um, but like I said, you know, for me, honestly, a, a fandom interests me when there's something that I can dig into. And work with. And fix. But Farscape. You know it's just. It's great. Doesn't need anything from anybody. One of my favorite British cop shows. Is. Um, uh, Midsummer Murders. Um, I've been watching. I, I watched Vera too. I love Vera. Vera is so good. Um, 
I watched a couple on Acorn a couple weeks ago, but I forget what they are. They were great too. Um, Midsummer Murders is just amazing. I mean, it just, you know, but you'll never convince me that British villages aren't full of murderers and sexual deviants. I thought Team Wolf ended. Anyways, if you guys don't have any more questions, we will end this podcast right here. Um, I think it went really well. I want to thank you all for all your questions and everything. So, um, but if we do another one in the future, we will kind of prep ahead so you'll be able to like look at the author that's going to be doing it and read some of their work so you can ask some you know questions and stuff so um we'll get a lot of participation because that will be really great you guys so um thank you so much and um we can we can continue chatting i'm just going to go ahead and end the podcast right here so have a good night